Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. Today my guest from the West is singing teacher Liz Pascoe. Liz Pascoe has been a singer, pianist and teacher for more years than she cares to remember. She practices immense dedication to her work and adopts enormous responsibility in delivering the best tuition possible. Liz originally trained as a secondary English and music teacher, working for some years in secondary schools where she honed her skills as a writer, vocal coach and musical director. Since 1990, she's been a part-time lecturer in singing in the acting and music theatre departments at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. The students valued the committed guidance from Liz. Her work has contributed to many of them enjoying extensive careers on the Australian stage. Liz's performing and creative experience includes opera, theatre restaurant, performance, musicals, music direction and composing for youth theatre, accompanying and vocal coaching. She shares with stages her great knowledge of the voice as an instrument and tool for communication and art. I have certainly benefited from Liz's guidance and it was a joy catching up with an old friend. Do you use Duolingo? No. Okay, it's a fantastic app for, for any... It's I don't know how many languages they've got on there, but they're a huge number. And if you're travelling somewhere where you wanted to just pick up some basic phrases, you could use it for that. But I've been using it because I did, in fact, study German through four years of high school and then for two years of university, but I haven't used it much since. So it's, yeah, I'm just refreshing my German with it. I've been avidly reading Stage Page recently. Yeah, we're trying to market it more. Well, I've subscribed to it. Good. Yes. So tell me what Stage Page is. Well, Stage Page is our, it's our family business, I guess. Um, Because you've got, uh, out of three children, you've got two who are in the performing arts or who are artists, a filmmaker and and an actor. True. Uh, That wasn't really why Stage Page began. It began when Robin was approached by Currency Press many years ago to write a glossary of theatre and drama terms with a target market of schools, secondary schools. Currency had perceived a a need for that so he spent a summer and the best part of the next six months putting that together as I recall and submitted it and then it was put into uh, reviewed by some secondary teachers in New South Wales who didn't think that it was a viable resource and so currency paid him an honorarium for the work and basically said, you can do whatever you like with the manuscript because we're not going to go ahead and publish after all. And so with that, we talked about not wasting that. And so we decided to self-publish and set up a publishing company. And then a few years after Drama Key Term, the Drama and Theatre Key Terms and Concepts was published, we were approached, and I remember the. I remember it very clearly because we were on a once-a-year visit to one of the Westfield shopping centres and in the food hall having something to eat. It was in the pre-Christmas rush when Robin's mobile rang and it was two media teachers 
who had put together media terms and were looking for a publisher and found us because we were a listed publisher and wondered whether we could publish their book. We found it at first hilarious because we really only formed the partnership in order to publish this one book. However, we met with Vanessa Peters and Vince Donnelly and went ahead and published their book. So Stage Page for many years had two publications. Uh, The drama book always sold more copies than the media book, but in recently uh, we have put both into digital form. So it'll be interesting to see in the in the next year or so what happens with that. In a recent blog you wrote, those of us teaching music, or for that matter any of the arts, know the special nostalgia of farewelling students after sharing years of arts-rich teaching and learning experiences with them. Experiences which both student and teacher will remember for many years to come, probably for life. That's very true, isn't it? I look back and think of my school days and it's the the time I spent in, in choirs and concerts and school productions that, that still remain vivid. Yes, yeah. Why, why is that? I mean, obviously I'm a bit biased and I had a lot of fun doing it, but... I think there is. I think there's a particular commitment that comes, and I'm sure that this would also apply to sporting teams, in fairness, I think it must do, but there's a special commitment that comes in the rehearsal process, whether it's rehearsing the school musical, rehearsing in choir, rehearsing for any kind of performance, and that discipline of what we sometimes refer to as hard fun is a is quite a lengthy process and then the the payoff comes in the performance season even in a not highly successful performance season there is a satisfaction about getting something to completion and that is memorable but i've i've experienced it both as a student myself but of course now through many many years of teaching i will well, frequently, not not very frequently, but often be approached by middle-aged people that I don't recognise who remember me because I either taught them singing or I musically directed a production or I coached them in some way. And I think it is, it's, the, it's not me that they're remembering so much as the experience of doing that and by association the people that were part of that process. Can you recall the first word you spoke as a child or have you been told what that was? This is really weird because I do recall actually doing it and it was a very young age. Perhaps my recollection is because it was also spoken to me but I remember being in my bassinet on the veranda of my grandmother's house in West Leadville and my mother had been in bed all afternoon with a severe migraine and I remember her approaching me and I remember looking at her and saying dad 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 much to her chagrin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Migraines because I know you suffer from migraines a lot too are they generic? 
or can they be? Oh, they're absolutely inherited. Uh, I no longer suffer from migraines because migraines miraculously disappear in many chronic migraine sufferers once you get to the age of 60. But yeah, my mum got migraines all of her life and her mother got them. So it was, it's definitely a familial thing. And my sister gets migraine. And out of our three kids, uh, Ben, the, the middle child, is the only one who does. So you grew up in West Australia? Yes. In Leaderville? I spent my early childhood years in Leaderville and then uh, my mother moved when she remarried to Netherlands. So we, we changed location. Uh, and my schooling was at West Leaderville Primary School, followed by Netherlands Primary School, and then a scholarship to St Mary's Anglican Girls School when it was still in West Perth. And then I was part of the the first year to move to the site that the school continues to occupy in Karana. Did you perform as a child? Yeah, I was I was a a very passionate would be pianist. So my grandmother was a piano teacher, and unusual for her time because she went to the Royal College of Music in London to study piano and came back only because the First World War was beginning and her father sent a cable and said, you must come home, and she did. But she then taught piano because the agreement with her father, she was the only daughter with two brothers, was that if she were to go to London and teach piano, she must return the favour that he was doing by supporting that, by agreeing to teach piano. So she did. Uh, She started as soon as she came back and she stopped teaching piano six months before she died at 84. Was there much music education at school? Because I think I read somewhere where there was very little. Uh, In my day, the music education in this state was usually a Friday 11am uh, wireless broadcast uh, called Singing for Schools, I think originally, uh, put out by ABC. And it was usually uh, the crackly old wireless set in every classroom would be turned on and the whole class would were supposed to listen and join in some singing. And it was nearly always songs that most of the children in the class didn't want to sing. It was often a German leader with English words and music that was, I think, perceived to be good for us of a classical nature. Now, because I was studying piano, I started learning piano when I was seven, uh, and had played on my grandmother's piano from the time that I could reach it, but just playing around I loved the broadcast to schools but my friends and classmates I think were bored witless by it then uh, music specialization or music specialist teaching really didn't come into West Australian schools till the 1980s but back in my primary days which spanned I started school in 1958 Through the 50s and 60s, uh, recorder teaching was 
introduced. Oh, so, but back in those days, it wasn't quite as dire as it later became because the recorders were all wooden recorders. So a different sound. A, well, a different sound, but also one of the issues that arose with the introduction of more affordable plastic, plastic recorders were there were two uh, primary producers of those, Yamaha and Orlos. And you could not, they were, they were, the construction of them meant that you could never tune one to exactly match the other. So if your classroom consisted of kids on both brands, you would never have a recorder consort that was in tune. <laughs> oh dear. And then a uh, music branch came into being, which was the wing of the education department here in Western Australia with with a view to providing some music teaching, instrumental music playing to children in schools. And the first instruments to be introduced in that system were the clarinet and the flute. And my younger sister, who was beginning school in the 1960s, had the opportunity to learn to play the clarinet through that system. Uh, the clarinet was provided for a year or so, and then if you wanted to continue, you purchased a clarinet, and the lessons were in small groups. But Becky thoroughly enjoyed that experience. We all have teachers who have had a great influence on us as human beings or as practitioners, and I, I count you as one of those for me. Who was Molly McGurk? Molly McGurk was my third singing teacher. Uh, I, my first singing teacher was Lucy Howell, who was my mother's singing teacher and a formidable pint-sized woman. And I was in her studio for the last six months of her career before she retired. And when she retired, she passed over her legacy to two teachers, Evelyn Thompson and Molly McGurk. I had always found or perceived Molly to be very slightly scary, which is laughable in subsequent years. But I chose to study with Evelyn, and that was a great decision for where I was at at the time. So I had lessons with Ev for a number of years, and then uh, through circumstances moved on to Molly and Molly became a, a teacher, a lifelong mentor until she died and really a family friend. And one of the reasons our daughter Hannah is named Hannah is after Molly because Molly's name was in fact Hannah Molly McGurk. And uh, yeah, we named Hannah after her. But she was, she was a, an incredible musician. She was a pianist primarily. I think to this day she is the only West Australian to have been a national finalist in what was then called the ABC's Concerto and Vocal Competition. She had been a national final, finalist both as a pianist and a singer. And she really only took up singing uh, when her piano teacher unfortunately had to leave Western Australia and return to South Africa quite 
rapidly at the time that Molly was in fact appearing in the finals of the concerto and vocal competition in Sydney uh, her teacher had been behaving inappropriately with some of his young boy students and left Perth very rapidly and Molly came back and was devastated and didn't know what to do and one of her friends said, well, while you're trying to find another piano teacher, why don't you take up singing? And she did, and she became very successful at it. She was a very early Churchill Fellowship winner as a singer and studied uh, with Paul Hamburger in London and Lucy Manane in Paris and went on to have... She had a, a terrific singing career but then became one of Perth's top teachers as well. Vocalisation is an important means of human expression, whether it's talking, laughing, crying or singing. We learn from a very young age that we can get a response from vocalising. It's a vital tool for the actor too, isn't it? Yes. And some of the work that I've enjoyed most in the last 20 years has been being part of the team at Whopper in the acting department, albeit I'm a sessional staff member, but teaching singing to our acting students as part of their overall voice training. So we're not trying to turn them into singers necessarily, but it is part of freeing up their, their whole voice, their authentic voice. Well, when I studied music theatre at WAPA, you were my singing teacher over a three-year period. And, yes. and we've maintained a friendship over 25 yep. years or something, Liz. So that means we spent a lot of time together in a small studio, singing scales and, and working on songs. But we also did a great deal of talking. Yes. Um, which I didn't mind. It was often very therapeutic because I found myself sharing things that I didn't share with a lot of other people. My point to the question, I'm getting to this question of, is teaching singing, does it have a psychological aspect also? I guess to be successful, you've got to know yourself. And is it is it the role of a teacher to sort of help somebody find that? Or I do think singing teachers, and this is something that we become aware of. I'm also, as I think you know, on the currently on the board of ANATS, which is the Australian National Association of Teachers of Singing. And... Through that, I've been to numerous conferences. And I think I've, I strongly believe that singing teachers with no psychology education or degree should be very, very careful about seeing ourselves as psychologists or, or pseudo-psychologists. But I do think an essential quality for a singing teacher, or for that matter, any teacher, is empathy. And getting back to your point about sharing things in the studio, I think if you were to speak to our current music theatre students at WAPA, most of them would say that their singing teacher, and there are five of us, would be the only person on the staff at WAPA that knew them quite intimately. And I think it is because it is the only class that they take that is taught in a one-on-one situation and I think it is that one-on-one means of teaching singing that does open you up to another person but I would say as I studied piano myself for 
for many years and I, I had a similar relationship with my piano teacher who was also like a mentor figure. Certainly, I guess he became a friend, but it was, we shared a lot of stuff just through that exploration of the music in a one-on-one setting, I think, stimulates that. What is it about the voice or the power of the speech that excites and engages you? I think it's the potential to tell a story, to be honest. Uh, And I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately. I think singers, singing teachers are probably, broadly speaking, in two groups. Those who are very excited by a very special voice. And there are some very special voices out there, meaning that the whole anatomy of that instrument is such that it's going to produce a beautiful and amazing tone. So seeing the voice as an instrument capable of making a really beautiful sound. And those, and the second group, and I think I sit more comfortably in this group, people who are amazed by the human voice's capacity to, to communicate emotion, but to powerfully tell a story. So I would, I would rather hear a powerfully sung or told story than necessarily hear an amazing instrument. Is every voice uh, different? Um, look, I'm not talking about, yes, one's a baritone, one's a bass, etc. Yes, I, I mean, think every voice is different. Are there vocal similarities, though, that then require different approaches to training? Interestingly, I taught identical twins once okay. uh, in a secondary school because I continue to teach some secondary students and the two girls were they were identical twins they it was very hard to tell them apart except that one of them had a freckle on her nose and I literally had to look for that every time I saw them but those are the only two truly identical voices I've ever taught so if I hadn't been able to identify the freckle, either of those girls could have come into their lesson and I would have believed it was the other one. But there are, there are similar hurdles that every voice has to overcome. And in the case of the female voice, particularly in the area that I work mostly in, which is music theatre, the female voice has to negotiate the muscular changes that are involved in in learning to belt or mix belt. Well, there's a lot of contemporary musical theatre scores that seem to be written for these extraordinary iron-plated voices. They can sometimes buckle under, under the pressure. We've seen those alphabets in Wicked who can't last the distance and Evita. These composers who are <laughs> unnecessarily cruel to the female voice. Uh, how, how do they support that? How do they go about preparing for a role like that? They could be like opera singers, I guess. They, I think so. And interesting that you should say that because in conversations I've had at conferences recently, there's been talk about the, the old eight shows a week schedule in music theatre may have to shift if composers are going to set contemporary belting sounds higher and higher, then perhaps in music theatre we'll have to 
adapt to more like the opera model where it's three shows a week and maybe double casting. But certainly when I was first teaching in the music theatre department at Whopper 30 years ago, if we, if we singing teachers could get our students belting to a C5, the C above middle C, we felt that our job was done. These days, if a girl graduates in music theatre without being able to get a belting mix belt in most music theatre cases, sound above a C5, she's going to have a very limited time at auditions. So the whole world has changed and expectations have changed dramatically in music theatre and what the expectations are. How long have you been at Whopper? 30 years? 30 years. Yeah. How did you arrive there? I arrived there in a similar way, I think, to the early singing teachers. John Milson, the foundation head of music theatre, had observed me bringing in, I think, two years in a row, successful auditionees to the department. He, the, they, the music theatre department was just finding its feet and he had, I think at that stage, only one singing teacher. So he approached me after that audition season to see whether I'd like to do some sessional teaching at Whopper. And I jumped at the chance because at that point I was beginning to leave my former life of classroom music teaching, some high school English teaching, and had started already taking some private singing students, some of whom auditioned successfully for WAPA. So I was, I was very excited about blending those two teaching careers and so I, I agreed to take, I think, 10 students in the first year, but actually ended up with only five because in that same year, Roma Conway, who ended up being a long-term colleague and friend, returned from a 14-year teaching career at NIDA and approached John saying she was back in Perth. She came back to look after her elderly mother and was there any teaching available in music theatre? So John Milson went from having insufficient teachers to suddenly having teachers coming and knocking at his door. So Roma and I started in the very same year. Is there an age when it's uh, appropriate to start singing lessons? That has... The attitude towards that has changed a lot. When I began all those years ago singing lessons with Lucy Howell she would not look at you until you were 18 years of age. And furthermore, you had to be able to play at AMEB grade seven piano standard. So she insisted that her students had piano skills as well. So that has, is now seen as a very old fashioned attitude. And children are seeking singing lessons or their parents are younger and younger I certainly think as valuable a musical experience can be had by children up until their teens by working in a well-run choir because there are some aspects of technique that are a bit clunky until 
the voices change and remember girls' voices change as as do boys. It's just that it's not such a dramatic you don't notice it as much. Teaching at WAPA, where you're teaching young men and women at tertiary yeah. level. You've also taught at John Curtin High School Performing Arts. That's where I currently so, teach. So um, adolescence. What are the key differences in the age of the voice? There are fundamental things that you teach a beginner singer at any age. Of course, alignment and breathing would are teachable to a young child, adolescent or a tertiary student. I would very much avoid belting with young female singers and increasingly at WAPA we teach a mixed belt and only venture into a fully fledged belt with students that are physically equipped to do it. I think to the current trend in music theatre as opposed to say contemporary singing is the recognition that we're training students to do eight shows a week, whereas contemporary singers usually gig three or four times a week. And so the belting, which is the most challenging part of singing technique for females in music theatre, uh, is best and most safely managed through some kind of a mix. But... I think another key difference between working with adolescents and WAPA students is at WAPA I'm working in a vocational sense with young men and women who have identified as wanting seeking a career in music theatre. In my work at John Curtin, where the, where the children are specialist music theatre, gifted and talented education students, I still see my job as primarily an education one. So I'm always encouraging them to explore other styles as well. And in fact, I've just in the last week accompanied one of the Year 12 students at an audition for the classical department at WAPA. Now, he will also audition for music theatre, but if he hadn't had that he hadn't explored some classical repertoire in his earlier years at John Curtin. He wouldn't be in a position to do that. So I think it's a, in dealing with teenage voices, it's maintaining a fairly broad experience of music and then in the more specialised work with the Whopper students, it's starting to look at the 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 specifics of music theatre technique and performance. And remember, these days, many of our first-year WAPA students are, in fact, teenagers still. True, true. Do you still find opportunities yourself to sing? Uh, until recently, yes. I do sing every day. Um, the, the most recent musical that I did was now many years ago, uh, and it was at the now defunct... Um, Effie Crump Theatre above the Brisbane Hotel here in Perth and it was ironically the Effie Fellows show which was written by Arnie Neamey's wife Julie Hudspeth and looked at uh, Perth's um, most famous male impersonator and Effie uh, 
strongly desired to leave home in the depression years and did so by dressing as a as a boy and then had quite a big career in the USA uh, doing vaudeville kind of shows but that was the last musical that I did where I primarily did the MD work for that but also made a very brief appearance as Effie's rather bitter older sister um I've I've done little sort of charity bits and pieces but it's ages since I've actually worked up a program of songs to sing anywhere we should mention your cat there saying hello what's it what's what's his name this is her name uh, is Blackadder which I know is a masculine name but refers to the little Blackadder kind of goatee marking on her she's 16 years old and is something left behind by our three kids <laughs> you're currently president of Annette's no, I've no, never been president oh, of Annats. Right. But you're on the committee. Uh, I'm on. Uh, I'm the. I'm on the WA committee where I was the former secretary and, and treasurer, um, and I'm. I've been for some years on the national board of Annats. I was until twelve months ago the national secretary. That's what I knew you were some sort of great yeah, hooper. but not the president. So why are professional organisations essential to practitioners? Annats began. Because and we're thirty years old now, um, because piano the, there has always been in every state in Australia a music teachers association. That association flourishes in most states, certainly in WA, but it has always been primarily an organisation of studio home piano teachers, of which there are many. And Annette's began as a way of singing teachers having their own platform and a vehicle for professional development and ongoing learning. Back when we started, the only singing teaching really was classical singing teaching. And in the early days of Annette's, even music theatre teaching was seen as a little bit different I guess and it was important to continue teaching music theatre performers in a classical way and then to add into the mix along came contemporary singers saying well there is actually a very specific set of techniques about what we do as well so Annette's I think is a very important association certainly from my fundamental training as a singer and then when I was in my 30s I I had done the AMEB's performance diplomacy AMUS in both piano and singing and the LMUS in the licentiate diploma in singing performance the the AMEB brought out a, a TMUS a, a, a diploma of teaching pedagogy for singing and Molly McGurk encouraged me to do it because she thought that I could have some talent as a singing teacher but I had always felt that I didn't want to try that because I felt that I didn't have qualifications to do it. I was trained as a classroom teacher but my music 
qualifications as such were, or performance qualifications were, in fact, performing ones that pertain to me. And I'd proven to myself when we were living in Meriden and I was still classroom teaching that I was a terrible piano teacher. So I did take on, when our oldest child was born and I was on maternity leave, I took on a couple of piano students at home in Meriden and I was really, really bad at it. So I felt that if I were going to embark on any kind of singing teaching, I needed to learn how to do it. And certainly my association with ANATS has been one of my primary conduits to further learning in voice science and the teaching of singing because we've had the opportunity to link up with really top international teachers. And I think the whole the journey for the ANATS community has been one of mutual learning. Uh, we know that staying active contributes to body maintenance yes. and extends what we're capable of. Is it the same with voice? Should we be doing daily vocal exercises? I think it's important to use the voice in a daily capacity. I really firmly believe for a voice practitioner, whether it's an actor or a singer, the the discipline of the daily warm-up, which is lining the body up in a physical and sound sense to work for the day. So I certainly encourage my own students to do that and I'll produce sequences of or suggested sequences of ways in which they might achieve that goal. Uh, I've been known to produce CDs back in the day for my own students of exercises. Uh, I'll often record sequences so in answer to your question yeah I think it's really important so which is why I was saying that I I sing every day though I don't do my main performing um is as an accompanist now but you, you build some sort of muscle when the the voice is yes, operational all the, time. Is. the greatest um, example of that I can talk about is you know when you've been on school break and you come back to begin the term, those first two weeks, you go home and, and you can be quite vocally exhausted and talking to a class all day. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Until you, you become school fit yes. over, yeah. over the weeks in yeah. the term. Yeah, which is precisely my point. It's important to exercise the voice every day. And remember, we speak way, way more than we sing. So it is really important to, to get into your singing voice on a daily basis. To help with that, that range. Well, to maintain the muscle, really. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it's not just actors, singers who need it to, to have care of their voices. It's all of us. Yes. Why does the voice get deeper as we age? Does it? Yeah, I think so. I've heard people, you watch them later on and hear them later on in life. You do hear... Do you mean in the speaking voice or yeah, the, the speaking voice? Sorry, singing yeah, voice. Not, no, no. Actually, that's a question for when you interview someone from the speech path world. Yeah, because I'm I'm not entirely sure. I, in a singing sense, it's harder to reach very high notes. I, I'm lucky, I guess, because I can still get up to the the top of my range. But the, the vocal folds, I understand, lose some of their elasticity. And the higher the pitch, 
the the folds are vibrating with on their thin edge rather than the full mass of the fold so lower tones are the full mass of the fold vibrating whereas high pitch is is yes blackadder called yes. thin fold she's got a good voice it's a bit croaky <laughs> a bit like mine this afternoon uh the thin fold demands greater elasticity and i think that can be a reason why sometimes as we age we can no longer find those high notes and you'll also hear particularly i think in female voices an increased tremolo with age in the sound what's the hardest thing about teaching i think the hardest thing for me personally is that i still have a very large number of students and maintaining maintaining my energy levels through long teaching days is for me probably the biggest challenge and that may be an age related thing but i there are most days in the week i begin teaching at 8am and finish at 8:30 pm with not a a lot of breaks in that time so finding energy and enthusiasm for the last couple of hours can be challenging yeah finally really important question was i a good student you were it, 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 well i was thinking about this while i was waiting to do this conversation because you you have a file here in front of you yeah, yeah. I and prepare, I prepare. and you were i there are several endearing things that i recall about your lessons in room 1.123 at Whopper which is where i still teach one was that you always had an exercise book and that you would open it and there would be a page allocated to today's lesson and you would write things down which i think is a very commendable practice i think that came from my previous life as a teacher yeah it did yeah. i'm sure uh, these days the students that are like you in type now take out their iPhones and right. press record at the start of a lesson and yes you were a very committed student you were focused and you practiced a lot and sometimes we had to as in first year you may recall that you had some issues with actually pitch matching yeah yeah and we tediously worked through some of your song repertoire over and over and over again a lot of students would not have had the stamina to do that but you did so yes i think but i think it partly came from you were in your mid 20s when you started yeah, the music theatre course yeah i was mature age student yeah i was 26 when i started yeah. and so you knew why you had come to whopper yeah. and you were prepared to to do what was required and i think that is an advantage these days we do have generally speaking a younger cohort of students and i think it is something that is demanded by the industry wanting younger graduates but i think we're sometimes competing with the natural inclination i'm sure 
you can remember this because I can still remember my first year at university, the social aspects of being at uni were way more enticing and seducing than what was going on in the lecture theatres. And I think that's part of being 18 or 19 years old. Whereas if you've worked for a year or so and you are in your 20s and you go through that big process of auditioning, you know exactly why you're there. And I think if you're going to train to be an actor or a performer, you need to have some sort of life experience, some sort of palette to draw yes, upon. Yes, but when you're auditioning at 18 years of age, you don't know that. And you have, there's also that, I must do this and that hunger for doing it, which I think is also an important aspect. But that's the wisdom that comes with another few years of age. An acting teacher once said to me that you should never go to drama school unless you've paid your first bill and you've had your heart broken. That's wise advice. Yeah, it's great. It's wise advice. And you're full of wise advice too, Liz Pascoe. Thank you for having this conversation. (laughs) It was my great pleasure. There you go, the recorder. Now you know why the infamous instrument has tonal problems. They need to be wooden. I think I have a new respect for the tortuous instrument. Thanks, Liz. My guest next time on Stages is the archivist historian at His Majesty's Theatre in Perth, Mr Ivan King. He is great value and a conversation not to be missed. There's always something new for us to learn on Stages, so please don't forget to subscribe and indulge in the extensive archive. Find the podcast on Spotify, Wooshka, or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and you will receive each new episode as it drops. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. I'm Peter Eyes and you've been listening to Stages. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>